So 2 Samuel chapter 12 is our Old Testament scripture reading. We'll begin reading in verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 15. Hear now the word of God. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate at his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man, who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die, and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives in your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because of this deed, you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also who is, uh, who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. And then also in the Old Testament, turning to uh, David's response to this confrontation in Psalm 51. Psalm 51, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you shall make me to know wisdom. 
Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones that you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. The grass withers, the flower falls, but God's word abides forever. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you, Lord, for the work of your spirit and the work of your prophet, Nathan, and the word of God coming to David, bringing that conviction and conversion and repentance. And we thank you for the prayer that we have uh, that David wrote afterwards that many of us have prayed and many of us have read and thought about the, the work of uh, the spirit convicting of sin, of righteousness, and judgment in the life of David and also in our lives. And so we ask the Lord for your blessing now as we uh, consider the last two verses in the book of James as we come to the end of this uh, sermon series in the book of James. Uh, help us to be able to recall what we've learned and also to apply these two uh, verses as we see the evidence of your great aggressive love toward us in and through Christ. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, let's go ahead, first of all, and read our text. So if you'll turn to James, the letter of James, chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So we'll consider that text. You've probably heard this dialogue from a movie. You may have heard that. You may have watched the movie. The husband asks his wife, do you love me? His wife says, what? Do I what? Do you love me? She says, do I love you? With our daughter getting married and there's trouble in the town, you're upset, you're worn out, go inside, go lag down. Maybe it's indigestion. Goldie, I'm asking you a question. Do you love me? I'm your wife. I know, but do you love me? Do I, do I love you? For 25 years I've cooked your meals, washed your clothes, cleaned your house, given you children, milked your cows. For 25 years, why talk about love right now? He goes on later. But do you love me? Do I love you? 
For 25 years I've cooked for him, clanged for him, starved with him. 25 years my bed is his. If that's not love, what is? What is love? How do you define love? Jesus is a good definition, very good. I define love as caring for something outside of yourself. Do you love your wife? Do you love your husband? Do you love your children? Do you love your neighbor? Are you concerned and care about them before yourself? That's what love is. Isn't that God's love? His care for us? For God so loved? Greater love is no man than this. He would lay down his life for his friends who were his enemies. So we're looking at love here in our text today. The call for us to love our neighbor. The call for God of God to love those who have wandered from the truth. So the outline is there in the bulletin. God's aggressive love, he, I'm sorry, God aggressively loves his chosen in Christ. One of the ways he expresses that love today is through our calling to love and care for one another. God shows his love through you and me. That's our calling. It's the fruit of the Spirit, right? What is the fruit of the Spirit? Love. And the rest of the fruits are all based on that one. So just a reminder, an overview of the book. We've been, we've been working our way through the book of James, and James is taking the command of Jesus seriously, which is to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching to do or observe all that I command you. And so James is taking what Jesus has commanded and applying it to the beloved who are scattered throughout the world. So another way of saying this is that James is a discipleship manual, a manual of teaching and how to follow Jesus. But one of the other things that we noted in our study was is that James was Jesus' brother, biological half-brother, and uh, I have a feeling that when you looked at James, you could see a reflection of Jesus physically. That's my theory. My children, I have a son who came and visited one time, and, and he came up here and he stood during a Bible study, and someone said, you can't say that's not your son. The family resemblance, right? Well, what is James trying to do here, or the Lord is doing through James? He is developing a family resemblance to Jesus in our lives so that when others see you, they see Jesus. Is that important? Is that your desire? Are you like John the Baptist? He must increase and I must decrease. That when they see me, they see him. If, if that happens, I have accomplished why I'm here, is that they would see Jesus. If you're thinking contrary to that, come and talk to me afterwards. We, we need to talk. Um, so anyway, so that's what James is doing throughout the letter. How do I express love for Jesus? Well, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And so here he is in enabling us to understand how to do that. So the first point in, in, the, uh, in the sermon is based on that first two words in verse 19, Brethren, or my brethren. 
James is talking to people that are not his biological brothers and sisters. Who's he talking to? The church, the family of God, right? And if, you were, if you've been following along, how many times has James said brothers? Throughout the letter, from the very beginning all the way through. There's a point in time where he stops calling them brothers and is rebuking them, but then he switches back to brothers and sisters. So he is talking to the flock. He's talking to the sheep. He's talking to the family. And he is following the great shepherd, Jesus Christ, and is emulating him. So that first point, God's love through Christ. As I said before, Christ laid down his life. He said there's no greater love than this. He purchased for God a people by his own blood. How expensive was that? How precious was the blood of Jesus Christ? Is there anything in the world more precious than that? Is there anything in the world more precious than that which he purchased? You get that. You. You are more precious than anything else in the world. How do I know? Because Jesus' blood bought for him, his people. He purchased for God a people by his own blood. God the Father so loved the world that he gave, not passively, but aggressively gave, sent his son. Is the spirit of love. Paul writes in Romans chapter 4, why was Jesus raised from the dead? who was delivered for the sake of our offenses and was raised for the sake of our justification. Why did Jesus rise from the dead? Well, Paul says it's so that we are declared righteous before God in Christ. Now, there's a lot of other reasons why he rose from the dead, proved that he's the Son of God and, and so on. But Paul focused in on, how do I know that I am, I am accepted by God? How do I know that I can stand before God and he accepts me, that I am righteous in Christ before God? Because of that phrase, in Christ. He rose from the dead, and so therefore I am his. He claims me. He adopts me. He regenerates me. He does the work. He's sanctifying me. He will glorify me. All of this is the evidence of the love of God, love of Christ. And also Jesus came to gather his flock like a shepherd. What does a shepherd do? What's the job of a shepherd? It's to feed the flock. The shepherd lives with the sheep. And when the pasture land is all eaten up, what does he do? He moves them on to another pasture. He kept, keeps them fed. He waters them. He brings them to places where they're safe. He protects them. He guides them. Jesus asked someone, do you love me? According to the Bible. Anybody remember that? After Jesus rose from the dead? Turn to Peter. Do you love me? Three times. Like Tevia. Do you love me? What did Peter say? I have kindly affection towards you. I love you. 
What did Jesus call him to do? If you love me, feed my sheep. I'm going. I'm ascending. You're here. If you love me, feed my sheep. Be that shepherd, Peter. God's guidance. How is it that God guides us? Well, if you look in the Gospel of John, it says in chapter 14, Jesus preparing for the cross, preparing his disciples. In verse 15, he says, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. The Holy Spirit has been given to the church, has been given to us as a means or an expression of the love of God. Again, when was the last time you said, thank you, Holy Spirit, for putting up with me? Have you ever said that? He's holy. Sin offends him. As I've said before, sin is not just breaking the law, but slapping him in the face, slapping God in the face. It's an offense. That's why he wants us to confess and repent of that, and he sent the Spirit to do that work, just like in David's life. He guides and he protects us. God love his flock. Does God love his people, his elect? When did he begin to love us? In eternity. Predestined. Election. Before knew us. He chose to love us before we were created. Is that comforting? It's comforting to know that you are loved of God from eternity. How do you know you're loved? Because Jesus came. How do you know that you're loved? Because the Spirit works. How do you know that you're loved? Because you're part of the people of God. Second point, God's love through James. So we're looking again at this letter. Here, this letter is a pastoral letter. It is a feeding, if you will. The purpose, among other things, is to reach those who have wandered off. That's our text. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. The very, very beginning of the book, his first statement when he writes to his audience, he says, James, the bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Now, are they scattered because they've wandered from the truth or are they scattered because of persecution or something else? Uh, James doesn't say, but he says that they're scattered. So he's writing to a flock that's been scattered. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And so he's bringing us back together. He's concerned about those who have been scattered or have wandered off. Jesus says that he is concerned for the wandering sheep, right? Anybody know where that is found? Where Jesus says that the shepherd will leave the 99 and go after the one that has wandered off? That's Matthew 18, verse 12. Jesus cares for the wanderer. Does he care for the other 99? Of course. But in our text today, James is concerned for one who's wandered from the truth. How dangerous is that? 
How dangerous is it to wander from the truth? That means that you had the truth and you left it. You turned your back on it and now you're pursuing falsehood. Your own opinion. What the world thinks. What the flesh. The devil. Is it dangerous to wander from the truth? That's one of the frightening things for you kids. You may not realize what you have. And I hope and pray that you don't have to go through years of wandering in falsehood, in error, and even die wandering from the truth. Familiarity breeds contempt. You understand you have the truth. Understand, appreciated, the truth is in Jesus. So what we've seen in this letter is James's love in action. He starts off at the very beginning, if you remember, he says, My brethren, verse 2, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. When our faith is tested, what is the test? Am I going to embrace the truth or am I going to wander off? Am I going to reject the truth and I'm going to do whatever I feel like or whatever others say or so? So God tests our faith. What is the basis of our faith? It's the truth. It's the Bible. It's God's word. If we embrace something else, we've wandered from the truth. So what James does in and through the, has been doing through the letter is, is he warns us of the wandering, the testing of our faith, and then he commands us, here's how to overcome. Here is the antidote to this temptation. Like a shepherd, he feeds us. And now here in our text, he ends his letter with love in action. He calls our attention to the third point. God's love through us. Paul, another shepherd, another pastor, if you will, apostle, in preparing his son in the faith, Timothy, just before he passes, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, he says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So you, so you heard that. The things that you, uh, that you have heard from me, you... Commit it to faithful men who are able to teach others also. How many generations there? How many? Four. Timothy, you've heard the gospel. You've heard the truth from me. Embrace it and pass it on. But pass it on in such a way that those who receive it will then be able to pass it on. Is that what we are? Are we the fruit of that ministry? 2,000 years ago, it's been passed on from generation to generation to generation, and we, boom, it's in our lap. Praise God for the truth, right? But what does Paul say? Okay, your job is to share it with your children. You share it with others, and in a way that they can share it with someone else. 
We are called to love. Our calling is to love those whom God has called, those who God has loved. That community, that caring, concerned community. Isn't that what we want here? Isn't that what we want in this church? Do we want to be identified as a caring community? As a loving community, loving those who oppose themselves? To be a lighthouse, but a lighthouse that has light and heat? Are there those who you know that have wandered away from the truth? Family members? Friends? What is James asking us, calling us to do? If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, did David run a walk from the truth, wander from the truth? I mean, talk about in bold letters, right? He commits adultery. He kills her, uh, the woman that he commits adultery. She gets pregnant. He hides that for a year. And finally, it requires Nathan to confront him taking his life into his hands, because here's the king. David wandered from the truth, and he was miserable in Psalm 51. He says, he describes how miserable he was during that time. Nathan came. You're the man. You're the one. Notice it says, turns them back. Our calling is to love one another. And one of the ways that we do so is by turning them back from the error of their ways. Remember, our opinions can be deadly if not founded on God's word. True? Our opinions that are not founded on the word of God, can they be deadly? Yeah. Did Adam and Eve have the opinion that eating of the fruit is a good thing? Right? They listened to the opinion of the devil rather than the word of God? Thanks a lot, Adam. But notice that statement, turning them back from the error of his way. Isn't that an interesting statement? I have a hard time sometimes people saying, uh, when, I, when I first came to Christ, we used to go out evangelizing in, in a church, and we would go out and sharing the gospel, and we'd come back, and this one fellow, he had notches on his Bible with how many people that he saved that day. And that used to just bug me then, and it bugs me even more so now, right? Yeah, I saved three people today. No, you didn't save anyone, right? It's God who saves. However, this text here slaps me, and I, ah, what is that? Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Oh, okay. Now, how do I relate that to God saves sinners, right? Well, God saves sinners, but who does he use? Sinners. He used us. Instruments. Was Nathan a sinner? But God used Nathan. Was James a sinner? Did God use James? Does God use you and me? That's the amazing thing, right? As one, one person said, what is, what is the gospel? What is the gospel presentation? One beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. So yeah, it is our calling. Does that mean that we can do it in our own strength? Can we do it effectively apart from God and Christ and the Spirit and the Word? And the answer is no. But he chooses to do so. Notice what he says. 
How serious is this matter? Let him know that he turns a sinner from his, uh, the air of his way shall save a soul from death. Life and death. Serious situation. Heaven and hell. Life and death. Are, we, are you concerned about those who are being led to destruction? Wandering about in the air. We live in this uh, very dark community, don't we? There's error across the street. Many people think that, what, they get to heaven by being a good person. Is that the truth? No. Like I said, I met a Mormon today, this week, and we talked biblical words. They have different meaning to the same words that I'm using. Grace is something you do, and on and on. There are many who are on the highway to hell. How big is that highway? And God says, I want to use you to be an instrument of my love. Notice that. We'll save a soul from death and we'll cover a multitude of sins. There's so much I could say on that, but I've gone over time, so I'm going to close with just, again, reading this passage. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. End of letter. In this mindset, the last thing you say is of significance and you understand that? He ends with, go and love your neighbor as Jesus loves us. And so must you and I. Amen? Amen.